0: Welcome to Love This Food Thing Podcast. I'm Gemma. This is the place where we explore our relationship with food, be it friend or foe, and how this affects our behavior. Here's today's episode. Hi, welcome back to Love This Food Thing Podcast. I'm delighted to be joined by Dr. Rob Wilson, PhD. Rob is a cognitive behavioral therapist Mm -hmm. with a special interest in body dysmorphic disorder, BDD. Mm For the BDD Foundation, which is the world's first charity exclusively devoted to the condition. Prior to building his own practice, Rob spent 12 years working at the Priory Hospital in North London. Rob is regularly invited around the UK to train therapists and psychologists in CBT and has co-authored several books, including CBT for Dummies overcoming OCD, obsessive-compulsive disorder, and overcoming body image problems, including BDD. Rob, welcome to Love This Food Thing podcast.
1: Hi, Deborah. Thank you very much for having me.
0: It's an absolute pleasure. I did love doing all those
1: CBTs, BDDs. (laughs) Absolutely.
0: (laughs) Mental health is just, it is acronym CITY, isn't it?
1: (laughs) Very much so. (laughs)
0: but not as bad as my husband's profession which is engineering which is much much worse with all sorts of (laughs) phrases like blue sky thinking and outside the box and etc and i i i have i have i'm connected to you through tracy northampton who came on the podcast must be about a year and a half even two years ago who sadly her niece suffered terribly with bdd and ended up taking her own life, mm. and then recently I came to the tenth BDD conference, which was I don't know it was a couple of months ago, wasn't it? And uh, unfortunately, was only able to stay for a day, but and, and saw you speaking, and I'm we just love this food thing. We're just very very keen to support you because we know it's under researched, under spoken about, and there are lots of people suffering. So that's really why you're here to fly the flag for the body dysmorphic disorder foundation
1: wonderful thank you
0: that's our pleasure but before we start I have to ask you the the our initial pivotal question which is how would you describe your relationship with food would you describe it as a friend or a foe
1: oh I I, I would describe myself as a as a, an enthusiast. <laughs> <laughs> so
0: okay.
1: Um, so, um, I would say largely it's it's a friend. Yeah, um, I both I really I uh, I both enjoy eating food, but I'm quite um, a passionate cook.
0: Okay, um,
1: and it's it's also had a a, a sort of BDD relevant uh, dimension to my life since I was a teenager when I. Was at that time a competitive powerlifter.
0: Okay. Wow. As a teenager. Uh,
1: Yeah, it's from about maybe 14 years. Okay. Wow. Um, And so, of course, at that point, uh, food becomes very relevant as fuel and as part of trying to help your body to recover from intensive training sessions. So, it's had this. I didn't know that there was a thing called body dysmorphia disorder or muscle dysmorphia back then. Yeah. Um, but so this, that's, that has so that, that sort of interest in food as, um, as a sort of source of nutrition um, has also been an interest alongside my well-known passion for pizza.
0: <laughs> so uh, I won't digress and say where, where does your favourite pizza come from because we'd have to go through all the regions in Italy and talk about the, the ins and the outs. But okay, so 14... I think, I mean, maybe I'm, maybe I'm being naive, but I think 14 is young to be competitively, competitively powerlifting. What was, did you have um, mm, a balanced relationship with food? Because you're packing on the muscle so that you get strong mm. and so that you are the best and so, so that you win. I'm wondering how you manage that with your body image. I'm also wondering, as my second part of the question is also to ask, what was food like at home? How were you brought up with food? What were the main messages?
1: So that's, that's a, it's an interesting uh, point because I think uh, my mother was always very keen on healthy eating. We weren't really ever yeah. allowed near and near a McDonald's <laughs> um, okay. and occasion maybe a wimpy once a year for a birthday. But um
0: my yeah, mother's always sure. been
1: very keen on cooking fresh and low salt, and my father was eating low fat, high fiber foods since I was a little boy. Um,
0: so right, right. it's
1: interesting it as a kind of one, what I was quite lucky in a sense that, um, whilst uh, in weightlifting, both eating well to as you say, gain muscle and get stronger is a thing. There's also a drive before competitions to st- lose weight um, so that you can get down into the right weight category so you're not lifting ah. against uh, you know competitors who are twice your size. Got you. Um, but my mum was always pretty focused on healthy eating. So I think she was... Um, Quite careful that I didn't get too involved in too many supplements and too many crazy eating regimes. So I was always, I was quite fortunate having that kind of watchful eye um, over me.
0: Okay, do you know I'm being a bit—I didn't realise that you had to. To to reduce your your fats before a competition in the same way as you do with with uh, if you're boxing. But what, what was so? Exactly what was the that? Same. Yeah. Okay. What what effect did that have on you, or or not at all? Were you just like this is this is what it is to be an athlete, and I'm fine with it?
1: I've got some fairly miserable memories of eating bowls of all bran right. <laughs> <laughs> and nothing else.
0: Yeah, other cereals um, are available, but yeah, yeah. haven't we all? <laughs>
1: um, and uh, you know having to wear hot and sweaty clothing to try and drop weight. And actually what it did mean that um, again my my poor old mum, uh, the when the when the upside of that was on, on the day of the competition, as soon as you've weighed in, um, I'd have this amazing packed lunch full of particularly things like trickle tart. Yeah.
0: <laughs> um, yeah.
1: And all these incredible <laughs> foods that I've been avoiding for weeks. Um so they also made that quite a special, special thing.
0: Okay. Um, did that did that set you up though for for restricting and then binging? And that's where really where I'm going with this. Or were you were you okay with it?
1: No, luckily I've never been affected um, by that.
0: Okay, um, okay. And when it, you it, go on,
1: it's I think it set me up. The, the one thing I think a lot of um, competitive weightlifters do get set up with though is. Um, probably, as I say, an enthusiasm for eating.
0: Right, (laughs) Because when you're training
1: hard, uh, you know, you can get away with eating and sometimes you're encouraged to eat very large quantities of food. Um, And it's it's quite necessary to keep yourself fueled up. But recalibrating that and not overeating uh, later in life has probably been, if I have a struggle with food, it's been, hey, put put that extra slice of pizza down rather than, you know, insert it into one's face.
0: Yeah, 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 yeah. Do you still uh, do you still um, powerlift? Do you still lift weights and stuff?
1: I lift weights um, now and again. Uh, I've got a, I go to a good friend of mine has a, a gym at his home, so we hang out. We mainly talk nonsense and lift a few weights. Um, but uh, my weightlifting career, such as it was, was. To a fairly abrupt halt when I was, I think nineteen twenty, when okay. I succeeded in in blowing a couple of um, discs in my back. Uh,
0: and uh, yeah. things were never I, quite the
1: same since.
0: Ah, uh, I understand. I understand. It was just sometimes too much pressure, isn't it? Mm. I have a um a, a guy that he came on the podcast actually. He's a, a muscle activation technique practitioner, and he he was talking about weight powerlifters particularly. And just the stress on the body. And sometimes, he said, some of the powerlifters, of us, their arm will just snap or their leg yeah. will just break because it's yeah, so intense. It. Yeah, mm. I know. You, you, yeah, you never think about it. Um, that's a lovely image for everybody there. <laughs> so, so, so as far as body image went, because you mentioned um, the relation between body dysmorphic disorder and maybe yourself and rather than an an issue or, or anything untoward with food how how does that how does that link with your early um were you obsessed with how you looked
1: uh i i was not i was to be really honest with you um yeah i was more keen on how i was quite focused on how much i could lift okay um and you know even right up until you know my thirties, and uh, even my, possibly even my early forties, I was always very keen to be uh, one of the strongest people in the gym, um, and right. so that was definitely a bit of a preoccupation for a, for a time. And uh, having uh, a, a certain body shape, uh, which was being broad-shouldered and and skinny-legged. <laughs> Uh, was right. so sort of just a sort of side effect really it wasn't something okay. I was that concerned about um but it was actually you know the you know it doesn't mean that you don't you, you know, i can remember being um, this is this is definitely the disclosure um being voted at the time the fittest body in the sixth form oh, right. uh, <laughs> right. uh, which was so which was a nice which was a nice bonus but I wasn't I was probably at that time, frankly, not so. Uh, I wasn't probably in the right frame of mind to take advantage of that.
0: Ah, <laughs> uh, I, I hear you. I hear you. Yeah. Lots of subtext and meaning there. Okay. You sound very, <laughs> r- relatively, no, very balanced. I'm just, and also just before we move on, that drive in the gym to be the fittest, is that just being about the best? Is that just com- that kind of competitive drive?
1: It was specifically about being stronger.
0: Um, Right. What does that mean to be stronger? Do you know what it meant at that time?
1: It's a good question. Um, I think, to be honest, part of it was that uh, being the one thing that uh, I think I, you know, when I was at school, I was a middle of the road student and um, just, you know, very, very average coming from what to me, of course, felt like a very Middle of the road, middle class family, and so on. Yeah. Um, I think um, by accident discovering weightlifting, I went to join a, a boys' club which did weights, judo, and boxing. I was definitely right. too much too much of a wimp for boxing. Um, right. And then kind of had a go at weightlifting and like, as you again, a lot of these things are, you know, about the people that you meet. And I was taken under the wing of a couple of really phenomenal. Uh, coaches, wow. John John Bevan. Okay. Uh, and they were coaching one or two members of the Olympic squad. Right. So quite quite competent. Um and I think it the one, so I think being stronger than average became my USP.
0: Really interesting. And that thing about being chosen and being under the wing of someone is really special, isn't it? And I also think for particularly for young men it's very important to be with other young men and yeah, be working no. together and and competing. Uh, this whole thing about competition is so terrible. It depends how how it's experienced, isn't it?
1: Yeah, quite right.
0: So that must have been really very validating to be
1: chosen. Yeah, yeah, and that's right. And it, and as I say, it kind of gave me my gave me a thing, you know. Yeah, knowledge of lifting weights, being in. In the local newspaper, being with photographs of me in competitions wearing ridiculous outfits, um, right, okay. became became <laughs> my 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 thing. Whereas as I think, as I say, I think perhaps before that I felt very um, very ordinary and uh, not very, okay, not, not having a, a thing.
0: Okay, yeah, I really understand that. I really understand that. We're going to take a quick break. Welcome back to Love This Food Thing podcast. I'm here with Rob and we are going to, Rob's just been talking about his competitive powerlifting and and what it gave him as as a young man and and how he felt ordinary and then not ordinary because he was clearly very good at something and he was coached and taken under the wing of some pretty impressive people. How did you, how did you then get into, you're you're a, a cognitive behavioral therapist. Are you also a psychotherapist?
1: Not well. So I did. I've also done training in counselling psychology. Right. Um, So that means being trained in a variety of other uh, modalities: psychodynamic, systemic, and various others. Um, But I very much think of myself as a as a cognitive behaviour therapist.
0: Okay. So how did you um no let's just go into cognitive behavioral therapy because I have been quite rude about cognitive behavioral therapy in the past (laughs) with people because I had a little bit when I was recovering from bulimic behavior I turn I've got this thing at the moment Rob where I talk about eating disorder behaviors rather than eating disorders because I think it gives you some leverage and some control and it's easier to deal with them rather than being defined by a diagnosis. So I'm going to say behaviors so but I was diagnosed with anorexia and bulimia and was uh, did that for many, many years. But when I was I mm, 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 saw my first therapist, then I because I saw a few, and she did some CBT with me. So my and it was okay. I didn't really like it, but the one thing that I can remember is that I had um, an elastic band around my wrist, and every time I had a thought that was (laughs) big sigh, every time I had a thought that was about oh I can't eat or I'm going to binge or whatever, I would flick the band around my wrist. So as you can see, my knowledge of CBT is limited, and I didn't. And there were other bits and pieces I didn't really respond to. What what would you like to? say about that?
1: Well, I'd say that that bears almost no resemblance to CBT as I would understand it.
0: <laughs> Great. <laughs> <laughs>
1: um, because we, whilst, you know, we know that people such as Paul Gilbert have really brought to light um, the value of things like compassion-focused therapy.
0: Mm. Um,
1: and, you know, we'd understand that has value. But, but but the driving force behind C- CBT should always be trying to help someone to develop ways of thinking which are more compassionate, are more helpful, right. are kinder, um, help to reduce distress. So, pinging yourself, punishing yourself for a bad thought um, by by giving yourself a ping on the. I mean, the, the, if you dig deep enough into the history of CBT, you will be able to find a treatment manual that suggests such a thing, um, but it's, it's it's it fell out of. Thought in anything to do with thoughts, what we call thought stopping, um, fell out of use a long, 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 long time ago.
0: I, um, I, okay. I and can I just say I always thought that CBT became very popular because it was something that the government decided to fund. Is that also
1: not not right? Well, I think it's 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 tr- it's it's become. Yeah, I mean, it is so since Lord Layard um, mm. uh, identified that the, the country was about 5,000 CBT therapists short at the time, um, and the government have got behind what was then called IAPT, increasing access to psychological therapies, is now called talking therapies. Um, there's no doubt right, that right, right, CBT right. has benefited from a significant amount of government support. But the, the reason that we would argue that's been done is that cognitive behaviour therapy has achieved a much broader, deeper, wider evidence base than any other form of psychological treatment.
0: Well, more, so than, a, more you,
1: than a really good... Go on, sorry. So much as you would want the government to support uh, treatments for cancer or um, any other physical illness on the basis of what's been tested effectively... Um that, that has been largely the case of why CBT has been so popular.
0: And is, is CBT, can you even say this, because I think it's to do with what the CBT is, let's just say treating, that's not the right way, but I can't think of another word right now. Mm-hmm. Is it more effective than psychotherapy?
1: In almost any trial where that's yeah. been looked at, um, the outcomes uh, are superior. There are some exceptions, and interestingly, uh, things like uh, personality disorders and eating disorders. Um, there, are, there, there are questions as to whether other models do have something more to offer than CBT offers.
0: Okay. Yeah.
1: But for common psychological problems like. Uh, depression, um, and most anxiety disorders, OCD, and so on. Uh, mainly CBT does show superior outcome.
0: Would it be okay, it's so interesting and it's also something I want to pick up with um, body dysmorphic disorder because uh, that was, well, that was flagged up on, on during the conference. Is it then, and this is, these are broad brushstrokes, but is it fair to say that CBT is is effective as a modality? Whereas I always think that that psychotherapy is very important about the relationship that you have with the psychotherapist, and in my experience, that's what's transformative, and that's what's that's what works. It was it was the relationship I had rather than what I was doing. I, is, there a, is there a difference there?
1: Well, in CBT, we've looked at um, some of the factors that predict outcome. And there was a, there was a really good study by done, done by a very eminent uh, therapist and psychiatrist called David Burns that showed mm-hmm. that yes, um, things like doing your homework predicted outcome quite well, so whether you go and face your fears or stop your compulsions or um, work on your thoughts in different ways, yes, that predicts outcome, but also so do things like uh, how well understood the person feels by their therapist. Right. Um so we've long understood that uh the C, the the various techniques and ideas behind CBT aren't going to have the the they they're not going to have their best outcome unless that is done within uh, a supportive relationship where the person feels well understood, there's, where there's genuine warmth and compassion. Um, and I think in really sticky problems like body dysmorphic disorder, it also makes a difference if you're talking to someone who has a real interest in helping you an interest in this condition, that there's there's a real uh, passion for kind of getting stuck in and, yeah. and teaming up with someone and that it really means something to the therapist to get to get involved. So there's no doubt that, you know, even in CBT for all our sort of techniques and evidence-based and stuff, that we, we definitely think the, the relationship is very important.
0: What's if you if you were pitching cbt how, how how can you pitch it what is it
1: so it's a um fundamentally it's an approach which focuses primarily on helping to try and figure out what are the patterns of thinking and acting that are maintaining a person's problem and those are usually things like uh, certain patterns of maybe negative or unhelpful thoughts things like ruminating and overthinking, dwelling, um, and patterns of avoidance or trying to keep oneself too safe in some ways. And so the idea is that between you and the uh, client, the patient, that you try and map out, okay, what's going on? What do we think is keeping things going? We may well also step back and say, okay, you know, what's the context in which some of these patterns have arisen through a person's life experiences, what we call a, a historical formulation. Um, and then together with the patient, we'll say, well, let's let's see what happens if we change some of these avoidance patterns, if we try and change your, any uh, patterns of thinking or overthinking that we think might not be working terribly well. And then let's see whether this changing this makes it better, makes it worse, makes no difference. And we keep thinking that this is about just learning through experiments to see whether we can help the person to find alternative ways of thinking, alternative ways of behaving that, that work better. D-
0: does it really help with depression?
1: It's uh, it's it, it certainly. Um, there is good evidence uh, for CBC for depression. The the, uh, the depression's a little complicated because of. uh yeah. There's also a reasonable amount of evidence that if you leave a significant number of people alone, that within six months they're likely to be. Feeling a bit better anyway, or a good bit better anyway.
0: Wow. Wow. Um,
1: But there is certainly there's, there are uh, numerous, numerous outcome studies showing uh, good efficacy in CBT for depression. Uh, the, in a way, I think the bigger issue for um, CBT for a lot of problems isn't so much about whether we can get traction and help people to get better. The 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 question that uh, we really want to, we still need to put our minds to a lot is how do we make sure people stay better right uh, and that's where things like mindfulness-based cognitive therapy and and so on have come in and perhaps showing that they can add value to depression in particular people with recurrent depression do seem to relapse less for example if they've been taught mindfulness um, as well so
0: do, and do you think that if you are um if you are a client and you are seeing a cognitive behavioral therapist and you are also engaging in mindfulness do you think that or not do you think but have you witnessed these clients understanding why they're doing things and how they feel and are they then able to contain their feelings because that's what it's about isn't it how do we bear our feelings how do we there are the big ones like the rage, the shame, the anger, and then the, the the sort of the the domestic drudgery of life, which we all experience.
1: Sure, yeah, and um, we certainly um, we see a number of patients these days that are practicing mindfulness, and I'll happily make the most of anything that anyone's already doing. Yeah, <laughs> so for sure. If they're practicing mindfulness, we might even just gently tweak when and how they're practicing it. We might do the same thing with hobbies, interests, exercise, and so on. Anything that's in the service of someone's well-being, um, we're very keen to try and, as I say, kind of make the most of that.
0: It it seems to me that, because as I'm talking to you, I'm re-evaluating my own attitude and, and thoughts about it, but it seems to me that CBT is very much about bringing someone into the present. And enabling them to be accountable and conscious of what's going on.
1: Yeah, that's definitely part of it. And remember, when people like Albert Ellis were uh, developing CBT, he was very interested in um, Zen Buddhism alongside things like the Stoics. Okay. These have always been, you know, CBT has these um, sort of philosophical uh, influences we're not we're not really claiming to have come up with all of these ideas ourselves.
0: And and Albert Ellis when when was when when was he doing all this?
1: Uh well he first became if, I'm trying to make sure I get my REBT history right here. He was became he started writing about this in the late 50s I think and certainly wrote his his big text Reason and Emotion it was in 1962.
0: Okay,
1: um, and so he, and at that time, uh, the, what we would now call CBT was mainly behaviour therapy. Um, right. So it wasn't until uh, people like Albert, who were, came at really, came at CBT with a much more sort of philosophical outlook, or came to therapy with a more philosophical outlook, and then later um, Aaron Beck came along with a slightly more sort of scientific position, that then we started to bring these cognitive approaches to. Um, the behaviour therapy principles that also have been going on since the 1950s.
0: Okay, okay. The thing that struck me on at uh, the conference was that CBT is highly effective for anyone suffering with body dysmorphic disorder and as you highlighted earlier, not so effective with people with eating disorders, eating disorder behaviours. Yes, before we, we we're going to take a little break in a minute, and then we're going to spend the rest of our chat talking about body dysmorphic disorder. Before we launch ourselves, hmm. how 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 did you develop your interest and, and and how did you end up being being the chair of the Body Dysmorphic Disorder Foundation?
1: Well, um, <laughs> <laughs> when I was an undergraduate student. Uh, I wanted to do a placement year in my psychology mm. degree.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Um, I went and bothered as many people in the psychology department as I could. Uh, eventually, I was steered towards a chap called Kevin Gorney, who was a professor of psychiatric nursing. He said, I know this guy called David Veal, who's doing a research project on body dysmorphic disorder. Right. Um how about you go and talk to him and see whether he'd be happy to have you there as a student, uh, which went and did with a, uh, another student called Fozier Shah, who is also now a CBT therapist. Um, okay. So we went to sort of blagged our way into being David's placement students. And we spent, so I would spend my afternoons uh, interviewing individuals for BDD for his research project. Uh, entering data into computers, and I was lucky enough to be able to spend my mornings watching uh, various therapists practice in individually and in groups, and that sort of paved the way to my to my whole career, really.
0: Wow! And what was before we take our quick break? What was what were these patients presenting with? Mainly, was it about their face?
1: Mm. That's right. So. Uh, predominantly, you'd see people who, you know, it's, and you would see people turn up to the interviews with, say, newspapers or folders held up in front of their faces. Such was their level of shame,
0: wow, um,
1: and self disgust. But yeah, it's it's, and this is often the case in BDD. It's the it's. it tends to focus on the more observable areas like face, hair, nose, chin, ears, eyes, that kind of thing.
0: Okay, okay, we're going to take a quick break. We'll be right back. Welcome back to Love This Food Thing podcast. I'm here with Rob, and we're just about to launch into body dysmorphic disorder. Rob's just said how he ended up being how it's become your life, really, or the, the, your your career, and, and that you are the chair of the Body Dysmorphic Disorder Foundation. Yes. And yeah, and we just spoke about uh, you know, the the early on with, with the research patients presenting about issues with physically obvious areas like 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 their face. And as someone, I don't know if you know her, but Deb do you know Debbie and Dan Butcher? Debbie. Came, no, Debbie came on the podcast, I think just after Tracy. And her son's doing well now. Well he was back then, but he had severe body dysmorphic disorder. And mm-hmm. it was a shocker because he would, I don't know, he was like I'm going to say 16, 17, 15 to 17. He would be upstairs eight to 10 hours a day, punching himself in the face, screaming in front of the mirror. Right. And I think he did work with David Veal. And that was, I was I was staggered because I, I thought body dysmorphic disorder was obviously an extreme aversion, hatred, disgust, shame about a body part. But I didn't know that... Y- you could go into that state and do that every day.
1: Yes, I mean it's it's probably less common for people to carry out those kind of activities, but certainly not not totally uncommon. Um, and it's even not uncommon for people to carry out uh, other other forms of t- DIY cosmetic surgery. Really. Uh, Cutting their faces to try and squeeze out fat or cutting the stomachs to try and squeeze out fat. Really? Um, people have super glued their ears to try and do their own uh, uh, ear work. We've had people deliberately break their noses in the hope that they can do their own DIY rhinoplasty. Um, and so it can, when people become very desperate, because you've got to understand that for a lot of people, the only in their minds, if you have BDD, the only vehicle to any chance of future happiness is some form of physical change in your appearance. And yeah. so <clears throat> oftentimes if if they can't access cosmetic procedures or they've been told they can't have them or they can't afford them, um, in the gap between, you know, whilst, you know, if we haven't managed to offer someone good psychological help, then the risk is that they'll start taking things into their own hands. And things like pushing on one's face or hitting body parts, uh, we certainly do do hear about this.
0: And, and is it complete self-hatred? Is it is that just a bit banal to say that?
1: Uh, I don't think so. I mean, it, it, it certainly can... Um, I don't think it is... Only self-hatred, it's probably a bit more complicated than that, but it does drive people to feel extreme levels of self-loathing and self-disgust, no doubt about it.
0: Are there other common motivators or factors, I don't know, bullying or... uh, Yeah.
1: So it tends to be anything that's made you feel different. Um, So feeding the these and that kind of experience that leaves you feeding... Uh, that you've been I don't know, made to feel ashamed or ridiculed in some way. Um, so, things like uh, abuse, sexual abuse um, and physical abuse, emotional abuse can be risk factors, but of course, um, regrettably the still to this day very common is uh, bullying and teasing. And we have very yeah. good evidence that people with BDD have had, you know, much more likely to report um, bullying and te- parents related bullying and teasing than the average person on the street.
0: And at what level would you say someone was suffering with BDD? Because I, so with with my along with my eating disorders and behaviours, I certainly had serious issues with my body image. Uh, couldn't look in the mirror. Didn't want to go out because I felt so unattractive. Mm. Yada yada. I could give you all sorts of reasons. I don't mm. think. I was suffering from body dysmorphic disorder.
1: No, and, it, and it's it's uh, typically said that um, if if you've got a body image problem, but there's disordered eating going on, mm. that is probably best understood in the context of of a eating disorder type diagnosis,
0: which is not so, um, is it?
1: Well, it's complicated.
0: Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it truth. is complicated, yeah. But, it, it, but from what the people people the presenters were saying at the conference, I I I left that um uh, possibility and thought no it's actually something completely different. Not completely different, but it's something that's it's functioning on its own. It's got not not nearly so much to do with disordered eating and food restriction, et cetera, et cetera. It has its that's own right. life. Yeah, it has its life. own
1: exactly, yes. It's a very um it overlaps in some ways, but it's a it's a very different problem. And one of the things that um David Fiel has teased out in some of his research um is this idea of people treating themselves like they're an aesthetic object. So there's a QI uh-huh. for aesthetics and for detail. Um, again, at the conference, we saw um, some quite interesting data, data from Jamie Fusner, showing that perhaps people with BDD do have an above-average ability to zero in on detail in their appearance and perhaps a deficit in being able to see their appearance in a kind of more global, sort of general kind of way.
0: That's so right. I
1: might look in the mirror and think, Nah, you know, Overall, not so bad, um, where it, which is a blessing. Um, whereas the uh, someone with BDD, their eye will go straight into the particular flaw, and they're not, so it's not so much they're necessarily wholly imagining it. Although sometimes it is very hard to see what someone means when they talk about the flawed appearance. But it's often it may be partly that their brain is extremely good at zeroing on seeing detail. And that they also have very high aesthetic standards. So it tends to be less about, so we think the core of the problem is this issue of preoccupation and aesthetic standards, less about um, disordered eating, for sure.
0: Yeah. And does it often go undiagnosed? Is it masked by something else or is it... No, yeah I mean that what's it like what I don't know what what's it like with people who, who um, would diagnose themselves with or be diagnosed with ADHD or who are autistic or mm. what, what would you like to say about that
1: well yeah the, it is it is a real problem the the average person probably has their BDD for maybe 10 to 15 years before getting a diagnosis and there are loads of issues for that one of the, one of them is most obviously that a lot of times uh, bdd comes on in adolescence but let's face it most of us were pretty neurotic about our appearance yeah, now, sure. in our adolescence so it could be although bdd is you know, a, a, a more severe version of that but it can mm. be obscured because you think okay maybe this is just part of someone going through adolescence and then it can be uh uh, you know, very hidden by sufferers because they feel very ashamed of being so preoccupied with their appearance and fears of being thought of as vain and so on. But even then, if we know that if people do then get to see a GP or a psychiatrist, they may be misdiagnosed as, oh, it's just a bit of low self esteem right. or maybe it's social phobia or maybe it's depression or worse still, that it's psychosis because the person's so convinced about something in their appearance and the, the, the The psychiatrist can't see it, so the the psychiatrist thinks the person is psychotic. Right, Um, right. And then even still, even if you are lucky enough to get a clear diagnosis, we know that there's still ongoing problems with getting access to good quality specific um, treatment. So it's it's tough. Yeah. People suffer for a long time.
0: Wow. And, and do you think it's because I'm that thing that you said about adolescence? You, of course, you become much more preoccupied with your appearance. You can't just blame social media, you can't just blame print media. You, because you, if you look back through, through art or literature, and we've always been caught up in how we look.
1: Exactly. Exactly. So yeah, uh, I'm so glad. <laughs> I'm so glad you made that point because I'm a bit tired of hearing myself say it's not about social media. Yeah, um, because it isn't. It... People have had um, anxiety about fear of being rejected and ridiculed on the basis of their appearance well before print media and and social media. Um, so, and it's much it... more emotional than that.
0: So that's interesting. The fear of being rejected. So is it. Is it a, a kind of primitive fear of of not being part of the tribe and therefore not being able to survive? Is it is there anything yeah. in
1: that? Oh, for sure. Um, and again, Paul Gilbert and David Field have written at least one paper on this idea that um, there may be that this is what has roots in things like social ranking and. Uh, as you say, the safety of, of being within a group, and so if you think track back to what I was saying about bullying and teasing and so on, it's mm. things that make you feel like you're an outsider, that somehow mean you're different, and, it, and it's perfectly reasonable to suppose that we've developed, you know, evolved a brain which is very sensitive to that, because it's not safe to be yeah. as a primate to be on the outside of the group. So it becomes something that our brain particularly is likely to pick up on. And what seems to happen in some individuals with BDD is they'll then, if they've been bullied and teased, they'll particularly focus on uh, the, the idea that maybe if they didn't have this flaw in their appearance, then they wouldn't be so bullied and teased. And that kind of really starts that journey of becoming very focused on concealing it, fixing it, hiding it, um, and you know, then that, that preoccupation slowly taking over someone's life.
0: So, are they in a constant state of flight?
1: Yeah, yeah. And that's one of the really interesting things about BDD is that um, maybe with something like OCD, you could wash your hands and at least temporarily, you might, if you have contamination OCD, you might get some relief from from washing your hands. We know that happens with individuals with BDD, they'll look in the mirror to check their appearance and they'll probably stop looking at their appearance at the point at which they feel so terrible. They don't hmm. really know what else to do, so they're not getting right. much relief. So it's right. very, very, very nasty, um, a very persistent problem.
0: Yeah, it's, it's treatable,
1: it's, luckily, but it's really horrible. <laughs>
0: yeah uh, yeah well thank goodness it's treatable. I'm also thinking that of our uh, and I often talk about this as well but our political climate our economic climate the world that we find ourselves in the world that young people find themselves in and we don't we don't you know the the divisions between the rich and poor get wider and wider so hmm. any wonder is it it's no wonder is it that i mean obviously we're talking about it more but it's no wonder that people are experiencing body dysmorphic disorder
1: yeah I mean what's What's very difficult to know is because BDD has been a relatively under-recognized condition for such a long time, and it's probably realistically only the last decade, maybe two, that people have started to know what the term BDD might even mean. Um, It's so hard for us to judge whether uh, we're now seeing more people because prevalence has increased or when mm. we see more people, because now people can actually have some idea about what's going on, and then they can put a name to their experience and then go and ask for some help. But the climate isn't helping. No, the, we are not going through an age of great mental health in so in so many no. ways. I'm laughing no, hysterically not. as I say it. Um,
0: yes, I know. I know, and I'm clear. thinking maybe it, maybe it is a, st- a stage of enlightenment, but we'll find that out later. Yeah, I'm with you there. <laughs> but it's, I'm, yeah, also-
1: this is a tough time.
0: Yeah, absolutely. I just what a prison to be in. I'm I'm also because it's 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 on you, isn't it? It's not like um it's not like manifesting your distress onto food because that is very much outside of you. So there's this some kind of some kind of distance even though it won't feel like it. But I'm also wondering how how you as a therapist, how you manage to negotiate with that defensive position of let's say my nose is too big that's the Mm. classic isn't it but and how you then get someone to to, yeah have some distance to detach and how does that how do you go about
1: that yeah that's a a really good question and and it's um in many ways probably what about one of the most important uh, aspects of therapy is trying to find some way in which we the therapists can get on the same page in some way with a person who often feels like you're a, you're a therapist, yeah. I've got a physical appearance problem, You know, th- this doesn't really match. Right, um, but, but we'll oftentimes try and help people to say, well look, or at least consider um, that maybe um, that there's been reasons that they've been made to feel very ashamed and anxious about their appearance that they've been yeah. treating their their problem like it's an appearance problem for a long time, but like been this, you know, conceding, trying to change it, maybe, um, camouflaging, and so on. But just really think together: how's that been working? What what's been the consequence of um, treating the problem like it's an appearance problem? And then just in a way to offer the opportunity to say, well if, you know, what about we try? Um, S- treated the problem as if it might be uh, at least somewhat of a psychological problem,
0: right? Okay. Um,
1: and often the the thing that people I was talking to a patient um, about this a few weeks ago who said the one thing that he felt he couldn't really argue about too much was that um, I would said to him, "The it seems to me that you're spending, you know, you've got like averagely ten hours a day you're spending thinking about your appearance." I said, "I wonder what would happen if we tried to reduce that down to." A few hours a day less Mm. and he said well actually maybe the one thing I can't argue with is that does sound like a lot (laughs) a bit (laughs) too much time to be spending thinking about anything yeah Um, so it's one of the things that's always been a real uh, uh, in a a way quite pleasant surprise is that many many patients are quite open to the idea of saying well look um, you're right the other the way I've been working on this problem so far hasn't been working very well. Um you that uh you know maybe I'll I'll see what happens and we'll save. Right only ask you for like um you know ideally three months commitment to treating it as if it's a psychological problem, but maybe we can just negotiate down to six weeks, a month, a couple of weeks even, and let's see what we can learn. Um, and I think so long as you're not you don't seem to be pushing and persuading and cajoling the person into thinking that it's all in your all in your head. Yeah. Um, but you're just trying to say, let's together, let's see what we can learn about this if we try and treat it differently. Um many, many people, most I so as far as to say most people are willing to then you know, give you the benefit of the doubt and give it a try.
0: Yeah, and I think also that's very interesting. I think that when you are once you're in the therapy room or once you are talking about this this thing, I mean not everybody, but generally, you are at that point where you're like, I will do anything. Right. To to feel better and to right. live differently. And obviously there will be lots of negotiation and arguing and <laughs> Dismantling defenses, but fundamentally, you're like, "I'm done, I've had enough, and I really need your help." And I think that's really yeah. important,
1: yeah, people often say,'ll I'll, I'll do anything you ask me to, and I'll often say, right. well you probably won't, but, <laughs>
0: <laughs> <laughs> but yeah. let's,
1: let's see if we try a couple of things first
0: <laughs> and and so, and so, as regards to the foundation,
1: Yes. Your, uh, yes.
0: So the, your reputation is growing. Um my understanding is that funding oh okay, research is growing and funding is becoming more available for for body dysmorphic disorder is that right?
1: Uh I I think I, the tr- the reality is that funding for any research in sort of psychiatry and psychology is isn't in a great place at the moment. Oh okay. Um we we are one of the things we're. we we're hoping really to. Part of one of the functions we want the charity to perform is to, actually, as part of fundraising, is to be able. We'd like to get to a point where we could even offer a small bursary to researchers to support and encourage more research. Um, there is. In the world, there is definitely more research happening on BDD than there was ever before, but that's because we're coming from a place of there being almost none.
0: Right, right. Uh,
1: so it's it's one of the interesting things about being in this area is that it's relatively easy to make a big impact because so little was being done 30, 40 years ago, there's like nothing. Um, so it's, it's growing, but it's slowly growing, in a way, it's growing proportionally because it's coming from such a poor place. Um, we do need to urgently to try and find uh, more funds to support more research and really see if we can what we can do to in, enhance diagnosis and enhance treatment and really help people to you know, find their way to health and get helped better, faster.
0: Okay, so anyone listening to this with deep pockets and they feel like being altruistic, <laughs> chuck yes. your money, chuck your money Rob's way. Come to the... Yes.
1: bddfoundation.org, please. Yes. Yes. And
0: um, and, and also, yeah. I I took the test. You, so if you if you if you're listening to this and you think that mm, actually, yeah, gosh, this kind of this is resonating. The foundation have a an online test that you can take, and then you get a kind of general mark, don't you, of, of where you might be on the BDD scale.
1: Exactly. So it can give you a a good idea of whether you might likely to get a diagnosis and there's also on the site there's a sort of GP card that you can uh, print off and take to to your GP okay. uh, or mental health professional saying look this is the nature of the condition, I, I do wonder if I might have this, I wonder whether I could be assessed properly for it.
0: And can you enter any kind of research programmes? Can you find a therapist? Can you join a group? What else happens?
1: Uh, yes, we've got um, a number of, uh, you can find number of support groups. Uh, There would another passion of mine would be to try and extend the reach of our support groups uh, further away from a little bit London centred at the moment, right? Um, And we'd like I'd like to see a support group for BDD in every certainly every city, if not every town in the country. Mm. Um, But one of the things, of course, that lockdown did to us all was make us more savvy for using, yeah. uh,
0: various internet
1: platforms, yes. Um, So there are online support groups as well. We have, um, one of the jewels in our crown is something we call the Overcoming BDD program, which is a structured self-help program, which we're looking to uh, relaunch and um, help people to gain access to something which is much more driven uh, by CBT self-help principles um, and is facilitated by trained uh, volunteers.
0: Okay. Um, okay. I'm I'm just going to say that for anything BDD related your foundation is the all singing all dancing platform and if you if you go there you'll find what you're looking for because that that's how you've set it all up.
1: Yeah. I mean, yeah. We have people come around come to the site from around the world. Yeah. Um yeah, uh, yeah, and it's we're we very hard to have a, a, a very large number of resources there.
0: Yes, so check it out. So it's the B. Can you just give me the full address again?
1: Yeah, bddfoundation.org.
0: Fabulous, and that will be on our show notes. And um, we well, just, we just, you. yeah, no, thank you so much. And the, you know what? This is one of these podcasts where there's so much to talk about. I almost didn't know what to say. So, so thank you so much. It, just fascinating. And obviously we've just kind of like skimmed the surface. But the probably the most important question I'm going to ask you is if you went to an island, any kind of island, any kind of climate, what five favorite foods would you
1: take with you? Oh, well, that is an important question. Exactly. I'm allowed is does drink count or
0: you you listen you have a stop you have. Well, I keep forgetting to say says you have a store cupboard olive oil season etc take what you want it's yours okay. and you can change your mind tomorrow
1: um well certainly I'd want to take all the ingredients necessary to make a good pizza
0: yes I knew you were going to say that
1: <laughs> <laughs> um, uh, and uh, plenty of, of of good cheese uh, and maybe you what kind
0: of cheese are you taking what kind of cheese Uh,
1: a few vegetables is that for your pizza or
0: is that for the whole thing
1: mm, I think most of it to be honest with you would end up on a pizza if I was on a desert island
0: (laughs) um, (laughs) so you've got tomatoes (laughs) flour cheese vegetable toppings and the olive oils and what are you going to drink with your pizza
1: My mind immediately goes to a nice bottle of Italian red wine. Delicious.
0: Absolutely delicious. Thank you so much for coming on Love This Food Thing podcast. It's just been a joy and a pleasure to speak to you. Thank you
1: so much for having me. It's been a a real pleasure. Thank you. Thank you.
0: If you'd like to learn more about the mission we're on today and who we help, simply head to lovethisfoodthing.com to see all the details.